Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com writing excuses season 18 episode 29 this is writing excuses working in partnership 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and we're not that smart i'm mary robinette i'm dong Lun. i'm aaron i'm dan i'm howard and we are going to talk about working in partnership with other people or with other ips uh, which can often be an entire group rather than a single person uh, part of this is collaboration, uh, but this is also something that you often will find yourself doing with your own work uh, when it's time to go back and write a sequel to something or a short story set in a world that you or someone else has established. There are rules you have to follow in order to make sure that it stays true to the original thing. Uh, so this is something that all of us have done to uh, varying degrees, so let me start by just kind of throwing this out as a general question. Uh, why is it important, or, or rather, how is it different when you have to work within an established IP versus just creating something whole cloth? So there are built-in constraints that you have to work towards. Um, I've done this in a couple of different modes. I've done this in someone else's IP for games. I collaborated with Brandon on a, a thing for the original. But the thing that I'm doing right now that is is basically collaborating with my past self, I'm writing the fourth book in the Lady Astronaut series, and I have to fit it in between the novels that I have already written and the short stories that are farther down the timeline of this. And as I was working on it, I had, like, I worked out this whole outline and grabbed one of the short stories to reference a character name and realized that it takes place two years after the end of this novel. <laughs> and that I could not have the ending that I was aiming for because it broke the rest of my canon. Mm. Kevin J. Anderson, uh, who famously has written a number of Star Wars novels, uh, was on the podcast and gave us what I consider the high-water metaphor for this, which is Lando Calrissian and Han Solo in Return of the Jedi when Lando Calrissian needs to take the Millennium Falcon and Han says, don't scratch it. Your job as a tie-in fiction writer, according to Kevin J. Anderson, is you need to take the Millennium Falcon, blow up the Death Star with it, bring it back to Han without scratching it. I love that metaphor so much. <laughs> There's a number of different things that I think that you're uh, thinking about with with that. It's the it's the fitting into the the con existing continuity, and so there's a couple of different ways you can play with it. One is that you can 
you could play that as Lando manages to do all of that without scratching it. And the other is you can have this whole side quest of, oh, crap, I have in fact scratched it. Now I have to clean it up before Han knows. And so there's there's a certain amount of gleeful playfulness that you can do where you're like, hmm, you told me that I can't do this thing, but let me see <laughs> if I can and still be respectful to the IP. The back and forth that I got to have with uh, Doug Seacat when I was writing uh, tie-in fiction with Privateer Press, um, and we were talking about coal technology and magic, and uh, I, I told him, hey, are you aware of coal tar? And he said, well, what's coal tar? I said, well, it's a 19th century thing that was a byproduct of coal processing. It's a, it's a mild acid that got used in medicine all the time. He said, I didn't even know about that. I said, well, it's going into the book. <laughs> and and so and that level of the partnership for me was so much fun because I got to reach into Doug's head and you know find out what they'd said and then see if I could add things to the universe. Uh, and he paid me a very high compliment at the end and said, "I love what you did with the 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 technology inside this warjack. We haven't had anybody actually try to describe how one of these works." And you just went for it. I'm like, yeah, I stared at pictures of railroad engines for hours. <laughs> uh, this was fun. The other thing that I, I want to say is that I, I think understanding that collaboration is not going to be the same way every time. Right. So Brandon and I have collaborated on a thing, and Dan and Brandon have collaborated. Both of these are audio things that were intended for audio. Mm-hmm. Our collaboration processes were completely different. With me... Brandon handed me a script, not a script, an outline and a a world Bible. And I sat down and we had a little bit of back and forth fleshing out the outline where I turned it into scenes that made sense to me. And then I started writing it. And in the process of writing it, I would hit these world building things, which is the thing that Brandon is known for, that made no sense (laughs) at all. Because what he realized in that process was that so much of his world building was figuring out in, as he was going. And so we had to have a lot of back and forth mm-hmm. about that and, and jettisoning things that had been planned in plot that didn't actually make sense once we actually got in there. Whereas Dan was given this very blank slate, which we talked about in the first episode in the series. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the Dark One novel was similar to what you got. He gave me an outline uh, but actually very little, if any, world building of how, you know, the the secondary world, it's a portal fantasy. How does that actually function? Uh, the collaboration for this process was just, hey, this would be cool to do this podcast story. Do it. It has to explain how this character ends up in prison. Uh, and that was the entire thing that I had to work with. Yeah, and, you know, I think... I have a number of clients who do a lot of IP work, right? I've had clients who've written for Bioware and Blizzard and Marvel and Star Wars, right? Some huge brands. Um, and it is always fascinating to me seeing how that process works when there is decades sometimes of canon and canon that's incredibly important to the fan base, right? So, you know, if you play with the world building of Dragon Age, you're going to have to have a lot of conversation around that. Now, the problem is there's an asymmetry here because you're dealing with a big corporation who is trying to develop a video game, make movies, make TV shows in parallel with what you're doing. So it's also trying to hit a moving target 
with people who are very busy. So sometimes as the writer, when you're coming into this, you need to find a way to manage your time and sort of protect your time so that you're not spending, you're not doing revision after revision after revision, chasing a moving target of what the current canon and what the current lore is. Um, working, Doing that kind of work for higher work can be incredibly rewarding financially and can be really fun to write in these universes, but it is a particular skill that's almost a management skill as much as it is a craft skill of finding a way to fit into that world. I think that's so important. Two things that you said that I love. One is that you don't get to pick the audience. That's the I think the biggest thing in working in intellectual property work and IP work is that the audience for this work has been determined for you and oftentimes has been built up for a long time. So you may be able to play with the world and with what you're doing, but ultimately, like when you write a novel, you might think, here's the audience that I want for it. But if you're writing for a game, it's these gamers. And so you need to know a little bit And I think it's always wise to get to know the audience a bit. You don't necessarily need to pander to them, but it's good to know what the expectations are coming in, what people sort of want from this property or from this world, so that you have a sense that you're playing to the strengths of it as opposed to fighting it, which is never a good thing to do. And I would say the second thing is, if you do a lot of collaborative work, is learning the type of collaborator that you are and the type of collaborations that you enjoy. Because not everything is going to be your cup of tea. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you don't like working with like big multinational companies because ultimately they hold a lot more control. You might consider like more of a one-on-one collaboration like Mary Robinette was talking about. I love writer's rooms where you're getting together with a group of people to create something and you're doing a lot of the generative work together and then going off and writing and coming back to see how it went. Mm -hmm. Just because it plays the things that I think are really fun. Sometimes you don't know these things until you do, but if you've collaborated on anything in your life, a school project, uh, you know, anything, a grocery <laughs> list, like a vacation, you know a bit about yourself when you work with other people and you can then try to use that and build on it when you collaborate in a creative space. Yeah, I think it's really important to not only know who your audience is, but who you're working with, right? Because I've seen writers go into collaboration with some of these, you know, big IP that have a fan base that may not always be the easiest to work with, especially if they're femme, especially if they're queer or writer of color, they can get a lot of pushback in a way that can be very unpleasant. Um, you know, coming up, I have Marco Shiro uh, is collaborating with Rick Riordan. And one of the things, you know, that collaboration was specifically because Rick did not feel like he was in a position to write these queer characters. So he wanted to find a queer writer to take that on. And, you know, it was the thing that Mark and I looked at very carefully in terms of, how is Mark being positioned to the fans and in that way? And I mean, we could not have a more wonderful partner than Rick on this. They, he and his team have taken absolute care to make sure that Mark is seen as a full collaborator and is front and center in the fans' eyes. And so knowing that we had that backup going in really changed the calculus for us of like, is this a thing? Or like, how do we approach this? What do we need to do to make sure that like, we're going to navigate this well, right? The book's coming out soon. Fans are really excited. We're really excited. I think it's going to be a really beautiful partnership. Yeah, this is such an important thing to consider, uh, especially, you know, remembering back to my days uh, trying to break into this where I was like, I will take anything. But also, if you let me write for a property that I love, that's even more exciting to me. Uh, It is often so much harder than just writing your own thing. Uh, I sat down back when Star Wars kind of ramped up its its new slate of novels a few years ago. 
I sat down with Claudia Gray, who's been writing a ton of Star Wars stuff, and said, tell me everything. I would love to work in this. And by the end of that conversation, I was like, absolutely not. This is, <laughs> this is not for me. Uh, I love Star Wars, but this process that you go through uh, that produces very good books and the people who do it enjoy it is definitely something that I would not have enjoyed. Uh, and so you do need to pay attention to who you're going to be working with, what their process is going to be like, um, how much do you love the property. Uh, given the same opportunity to write for Star Trek, I would absolutely say yes, uh, because it's more of a, a personal connection for me. Uh, but there are a lot of extra considerations when you get into this kind of work. Let's pause now. And when we come back, uh, we want to talk more about how this collaboration works. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I wrote a story with Brandon Sanderson called The Original, and this story is about a woman who wakes up and discovers that her husband has been murdered, and uh, more than that, that she is a clone, and her original murdered him, and she's been given a period of time in which to track down her original uh, and bring her to, to justice, and uh, and it is science fiction, it's immersive, but it is audio. It is specifically written for audio. Um, and it was a lot of fun to write. So if you're interested in, uh, in someone who's doing with a lot of, um, a lot of self-reflection out of force, uh, this is, this is something you might want to pick up. It's called The Original, and that is by me, Mary Robinette Kowal and Brandon Sanderson. All right. So, how do we do this? We've talked about a lot of the perils of collaboration and a lot of the benefits that you can get. Specifically, how is it different? Uh, what what do you need to do in a collaboration to make it work? I want to start by saying that there is nothing as inherently egotistical as writing a novel that you expect other people to read. And that's good. It is an inherently egotistical act and I accept that. I accept that and I embrace that. And it's important to accept and embrace that because the moment you're collaborating, you have to recognize that at least a little bit of that ego, you got to let go of it. You have to let go of that and learn to listen to other people over the voice of your inner artist who is shouting for the things that you want. And this may sound like a 101 level technique, but I'm here to tell you the world is the place that it is because it ain't a 101 level technique. 
So along those lines, um, one of the things that I have found to be a, a very effective tool is to, to think about, you know, there's your goal. You, you have to tell a story for someone else in this world or in your own world. Um, but that you want to bring, you can fit your story, the story that you want to tell within this framework. And there's a reason that they picked you to tell this as opposed to someone else. And, and that is your, your personal voice. And so I'm going to draw, take a brief sidestep to draw the distinction in voice. There's three types. There's mechanical, and there's aesthetic, and there's personal. If I use puppets as a metaphor, which I'm very fond of doing, when we say mechanical, it's like, what kind of puppet is it? When we say mechanics in writing, it's like third person, first person, game, YA, what are you doing mechanically? That can be taught, that can be mimicked. Aesthetic, what does that puppet look like? What does it sound like? Those can be taught and mimicked. Personal, if you're on the same puppet to two different puppeteers, it looks like a different character, which is why everyone freaks out when, when uh, Kermit's original puppeteer, Jim Henson, died and Steve Whitmire took over, even though it's clearly the same puppet. So it's matching mechanic and aesthetic. So when you are coming in, you want to make sure that you're matching their mechanics and their aesthetics, but recognize that your personal voice is part of why you were hired. So your ideas, your personal experience, those things are going to express themselves in the fiction. And that's, that, is, that has value. At the same time, you're also going to have to make decisions about which pieces of your personality you are sharing with them and which pieces you are retaining and which pieces you're willing to say, you know what, we can overwrite that in in because it is getting in the way of my paycheck and the thing that you want me to do. Another consideration here when you, you know, one of the things that you mentioned was the story you want to tell. And I think that that's such a big part of this. Uh, one of the things we said at the beginning was even when you write a sequel, you are essentially in collaboration with yourself. And it is interesting to me to to look at sequels or second seasons of a show and realize, oh, this creator misunderstood what the audience loved about the first thing, right? Uh, and one of the examples I like to use for this is uh, the Temple of Doom, the second Indiana Jones movie. What Spielberg and Lucas loved about the first one and what they were trying to do is not necessarily what the audience took away from that first one. Uh, the things that the audience loved were not uh, about Raiders of the Lost Ark, kind of weren't present in the second one as much. And that was a case of them identifying different things than the audience did in terms of this is what I'm going to continue. This is how I'm going to keep this story going. Uh, you can see the same thing with season two of Heroes, uh, the TV show that ran several years ago about superheroes, people developing superpowers. What the creators thought we all loved about that and therefore what they focused on in season two was people coming together and forming a super team. Whereas the audience was like, no, we already saw that. <laughs> We want to see the team do something together now uh, because what the audience kind of pulled out of season one was, oh, I love these characters and I want to see them continue to grow along this path rather than I want to see them walk the same path over again. And so identifying what it is that really makes this tick 
and how can I give you more of that while being different is part of not only writing a sequel, but also writing an episode of a TV show, writing a short story set in a larger world. What is intrinsic to this? What does the audience love about it? And how can I tell my own new version of that? And I think one of the challenges and and excitements of working in collaboration is that you may feel differently about that than a collaborator does. You may believe like that the audience is getting character and they may believe, no, the audience is really into the tension of it. And so sometimes you do have to set aside, especially if you're working with a collaborator that has more positional power, like they're a big company and ultimately you're not going to convince Marvel that they are wrong about X character. They're going to tell you it's this and you're going to have to work with it. But I think that that's actually some of the most fun of it. And why I enjoy collaborating is figuring out what are the mechanics and aesthetics that I need to fit my personal voice to? And how can I still make things that are core to me as a storyteller come through in this different format? Sort of like when we were talking about writing in a different format, when you're using somebody else's mechanics and aesthetics, it is its own like sort of genre of writing and figuring out how to tweak things and say things differently, but still get the core through is so important. I remember, uh, Mary Robinette, several episodes ago, you talked about, uh, I think, essence and form, yeah. which I always say as essence and expression. And it's, you change the expression, but the essence is there. Mm-hmm. And I think what it challenges you to do is think about what is the essence of the story that you're trying to tell in a way that you might not when you have full control over all aspects of the storytelling. You know, I understood this principle you're talking about in a completely different way when I took the time to look at my favorite X-Files episodes and realized they were all by the same writer. And there was something that that writer was putting into the stories, that essence, that personality, that intimate connection to what was going on that I responded to. And it's one of my favorite shows. I like most of the episodes, but these four or five in particular spoke to me in a very unique way because it was that singular author's voice coming through. This is a thing that we have to do in puppet theater a lot, that they say it takes five to 10 years to establish a company. And during that time, you have to do names, like Pinocchio, Snow Queen. And so the goal is to figure out how to do the story that you want to tell while still having the audience feel like they came out of the theater seeing Pinocchio. And it, it, it comes down to figuring out, okay, what are, the, what are the markers? What are the things that are important in this, these stories? Like, I, I know that in The Calculating Stars, and this is part of what I get from reading the five and four star reviews, um, when I'm in the right frame of mind, uh, is that, um, that people like seeing women in STEM. They like seeing someone who's, you know, dealing with anxiety. They like a happily married couple. And they want to be in space, Like, I I have to make sure that as much as possible, I give you at least one scene in space. I also think you can get tools from collaboration that are Uh like random things you would never have to have known otherwise. (laughs) An example of this is, so Zombies Run is based out of the UK and all the characters are British. And I am, was, when I was writing, the only non-British writer. So I would write things and they would be like, this is very American. They'd be like, you just use this American slang. This is not how things work. Stop saying, you know, whatever. The floor started zero. And it really made me like open my eyes in a way to sort of 
what are the things that I'm making assumptions about in the way that I tell stories that I wouldn't have thought about if a collaborator hadn't said, we tell stories a little differently and you're going to need to adapt to that. And I actually think that even though I don't write in Britishisms outside of that, it really helped me think differently about the assumptions I was making as a writer. You know, mostly up until this point, we've been talking about writing for IP or writing for an existing universe in those ways. You know, there's another type of collaboration that is two individual writers working together. And I've been fortunate enough to work on a number of co-written projects that were quite successful. And, you know, what you're talking about tools is what made me think of this. Mm. I think they've worked the best when I could see each writer know what they were bringing to the table. So in the case of James Isikori, that was Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank. And, like, Daniel was really bringing this sort of, like, rich world-building, really thoughtful politics, very expansive sort of uh, systems-oriented thinking. And then Ty was bringing a really strong sense of action and pacing and all of those things. And it was one of those things that each of them individually, I mean, Daniel is a truly wonderful novelist in his own work, but I could see how the alchemy of the two of them working together were making something that was so dynamic and so fun and, you know, created this really fantastic science fiction series. Um, Max Glasson and Mal El-Motar working on This is How You Lose the Time War together, you know, that is a collaboration that's really driven by their friendship and each of the two characters, red and blue, are kind of reflections of both of their styles and ways of being in the world and then figuring out a little bit how their friendship worked through these two characters interacting and talking to each other. And you could just sort of see, like, Max's more mechanical thinking, uh, Amal's more, like, organic thinking. I'm obviously being very reductive here. But, like, those two things coming together in these two characters in these really symbolic ways and weaving together make this really beautiful story. So... What I love is each of them knowing what their toolkit was and also understanding there was a way that that would interact with someone else's toolkit to make something that works better together than individually. Well, let me follow up and ask you some questions about that. Um, Was there a point in either of those processes where you as the outsider saw them start to click into what those roles were? Mm -hmm. I think with Daniel and Ty a little bit more. Uh, because that was a little bit more not clearly what what section was written by which person. They did alternate, and then they would sort of pass and edit together. That was meant to be seamless. With Max and Amal, uh, it really was more um, each, you know, red sections and blue sections are meant to sound different. So those were written separately and then sort of edited to work as a whole. But that was, and also that just showed, they didn't even tell me they were working on this. It just appeared on my desk one day. And I was like, what did you guys do? (laughs) Uh, Which turned out to be a a beautiful sort of surprise. Um, So it it depends a little bit on the project, right? Mm -hmm. Um, With Mark working with Rick Riordan, it has been, again, a little bit more deliberate of Mark. Like, okay, how do I fit into this voice, into this style of storytelling? while bringing uh, their own sort of personality to it and their own perspective to it, Um, which is what, as Mary Robin was talking about, they were hired to do. That's why Rick wanted Mark, because they had read Mark's other work and said, this, this, this is the perspective that these characters need to have. This is, this is Nico, right? Um, So I think in each, each case is a little bit different is one of the Mm -hmm. things that also is really useful. Not only look to who you're partnering with and what are they bringing to the table, know what you bring to the table, but then also don't expect it to always be the same. It's always a little bit of a tap dance. It's always a little bit of give and take. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the first collaboration I did with Brandon uh, was for a book called Apocalypse Guard, which is not published and, and might never be published. We've, we've backburnered that one. Uh, but that is a book he wrote 
for Delacorte and wasn't working. And he basically handed it over to me and said, is there any way you can fix this? Uh, which meant that I came into it kind of more with that mindset of, well, what are my strengths here? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I had the benefit of, of looking at an existing thing and realizing, okay, what do I, you know, I know Brandon is, is better at endings than I am. He is better at world building than I am. What am I going to bring to this uh, character and voice and humor? And that really helped us crystallize this is what I, my specialty, this is what your specialty, we are going to put these together and create something neither of us could have done on our own. This is me making me think of one really specific type of collaboration, which is that I also do some cultural consulting where I come onto projects and collaborate with them to make sure that they're thinking about the world beyond the one that they just know from their own cultural background is the way I'll put it. And so just bringing my own experience to the table, those tend to work better when it really is a collaboration versus like a, we wrote this, please fix it so we don't get canceled, which is a thing that sometimes happens. Um, But when it's truly collaborative, it's really interesting because what happens is you're bringing your understanding and like I'm bringing my worldview and saying like, how is this worldview a little different than the worldview that you would bring? And even though you're in sort of more control of this property and what's happening with it, I'm trying to bring something different to the table that I want you to listen to because it's going to reach a whole new group of people. And also just, I think be a broader and more interesting story. And I would say that, one thing that I've really gotten out of doing this is even in other collaborative projects, I will put my foot down if I feel that the collaboration is going towards something that I think is harmful or just like a story that I don't think needs to be told Mm -hmm. in that particular way, because it's not, it's, it's putting things out in the world that I don't agree with. And I don't want sort of my name associated with that can be a really delicate process, which is why I'm bringing it up right here at the end of the episode. But I think it can be very delicate to figure out when can you take power in a collaboration and when is it important to say, this is my hill to die on. I do not want us to tell this type of story. And when do you have to let things go? And really understanding the difference between something you may not like aesthetically or a choice you may not have made as a storyteller and something that you think is a deeply personal and like thing that you don't think should be out in the world in the form that it, that it is in that mm-hmm. particular collaboration. Yeah. I mean, I've seen the, we've mostly talked about when this goes well, I have also seen collaborations not go well and those projects not make it to publication, which I think in each of those cases were for the best. Right. And I think that's also something to keep in mind is that there are failure states of this that are different from the failure states of writing your own solo project. And sometimes it's knowing what's important to you, knowing where your line is and saying, I'm not going past this line and holding that ground, which can be very difficult to do, but it's important to have clarity about why you're doing this and what you're bringing to the table. Okay, it is time for some homework. What we would like you to do today as an exercise, uh, this is not going to produce sellable fiction because you are taking words from somebody else. Grab something on your TBR pile, a book that you are intending to read and haven't gotten to yet. Open it up, find a random paragraph, uh, and use that paragraph as the opening of a short story. 
In our next episode of Writing Excuses, we learn what all the one-star reviews for I Am Not a Serial Killer have in common, and we talk about the two halves of a reader's brain. Until then, you're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. For this episode, your hosts were Mary Robinette Kowal, Dong Wan Song, Aaron Roberts, Dan Wells, and Howard Taylor. This episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr., mastered by Alex Jackson, and produced by Emma Reynolds. For more information, visit writingexcuses.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.